0: Hello and Shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. We got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. Shalom, shalom. Hey everybody, welcome, welcome back to another episode of Image Bearers Radio. I am your host, Joe Amon, coming to you all the way from uh not Derrick, Louisiana, not Southwest Louisiana this week. This week, my family and I are on vacation in Panama City Beach. And so this week, I'm Joey Ma coming to you from Panama City Beach, Florida. I hope you guys are all having a great week and I um, hope everything is going well for you. If it's your first time listening into the podcast, I just want to say uh, welcome and thank you for stopping by Image Bearers Radio. It's great to have you. And I hope that you enjoy uh, listening in for a little bit on uh, our musings about all things Scripture. And uh, if you're a long-time listener and follower, I just want to say how much I appreciate all of you guys uh, because uh, this is a family that we're building, And uh, along with Out of Ashes Ministries, where I uh, am privileged to be the pastor. Um, we have a great online community that's being built. People come in from, uh, all the time to visit uh, our local fellowship it's awesome. Awesome thing that that Hashem is doing. And so I just want to say thank you and welcome to everybody. Uh, For those of you that don't know, just really super quick commercial. Um, We do live stream our Out of Ashes Ministries uh, Shabbat services. Uh, Shabbat Fellowship is what we call them. We live stream those every single Shabbat at 10 a.m. Central. And we live stream to our website. That's outofashesministries.org. We also simulcast to Facebook and to YouTube. And so any of those places that you'd like to catch us, um, we're there. And so we'd love for you to join us on a Shabbat morning. And uh, if if you're on one of those platforms, um, you know, join in. And uh, if you're on Facebook especially, jump in the comments. Tell us, you know, where you're from. We'd love to hear from you guys. Uh, I know a lot of folks listen and don't ever comment, and that's cool. I get it. Um, But, you know, we love hearing where you guys are from. We have people from all over the world, literally. Uh, that listen, and it's just amazing, amazing. For those of you that don't know, uh, the town where we where we uh, our ministry is uh, has about ten thousand people, eleven thousand people. So uh, a small, small town, and yet Hashem has allowed us to to open doors for us to reach, you know, to the across the world. And that's just, that's amazing to me. It just, it blows my mind when I think about it. And, and you are all a part of that. And, uh, you guys all make that worthwhile. And so I just want to say thank you and welcome. Uh, this week we are continuing, uh, in our kind of parsha. The last few weeks we've been in the, uh, in the parsha, um, and and tracking through some things that, I, that are that are really important to me and really interesting to me. And uh, this week we're we're going to be in this week's uh, actually another double portion this week. And um, so this week we're going to be in Behar, Behikotai, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk about exile and what exile means to the nation of Israel, why it's so important that they came back to the land, and. Um, And talk about how kind of the Bible thinks about exile a little bit But before we jump into this week's episode, let's go to the Father in Prayer Avinu Malkinu, our Father and our King, Creator of the Universe We are so thankful that you allow us to partake in your Word, to partake in your Spirit And Father, to partake in your plan for humanity Thank you for making us partners, for making us children We bless you today, through Yeshua our Messiah All right. So as we said, this week is another double portion. So I think this is a third week in a row, if I'm not mistaken, that we've had a double portion. And uh, this week's uh, portion is Behar Uh Behar and Behekotai, and uh, two incredible portions. And these these I said this last week. These these last several portions that we've had. Um, they all have a, some interesting threads that run through them that kind of tie them together, um, even though you, we may come across parts that seem to be disjointed. Um, for instance, in this week's Parsha, we're, you know, if you read through, uh, it begins in uh, Vayika 25, Leviticus 25, and it's all about the Shabbat and the, and the Yovel, right? It's all about the Shabbat, uh, the Sabbath year, uh, and the, um, the Jubilee, the Shemitah, rather, the Shemitah and the Yovel. And uh, it gets to the the end, and uh, and it has this familiar refrain um, for Bnei Israel. This is in verse uh, 55, Bnei Israel, are my servants, my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am Adonai your Elohim, right? And that's kind of a refrain that that uh, I am Hashem, I am Adonai. That refrain continues throughout the book of Vayikra, and it's kind of a a, a, a book end to kind of end a section a transition to another. And then at the beginning of uh, chapter 26, it has this couple verses about idols, right? And it, it's kind of odd. Uh, and, and these are sections that are put in together, and it just seems out of place. And one of the main things to remember about, uh, about the Torah as a whole is that while some parts are narrative, they're telling the story and they're walking you through the, the, the narrative of Israel's history, um, they are not chronological. And so you have uh, Numbers has a, a couple of chapters like this where I think it's chapter like 19. Actually, in chronology, comes before chapter 11, I believe it is. I don't have those exactly right. But uh, Numbers has it. Uh, Genesis surely has it. Uh, Leviticus has it where uh, things are not chronological. So if we try to read them chronologically, it doesn't, doesn't really work. It's almost similar to how we try to harmonize the Gospels. And um, as we get into the Gospels in a a few weeks, um, probably with with Kyle doing some work with us there uh, and and joining the discussion, as we get into the Gospels, we're going to talk about how it's, we believe, and I personally very strongly believe, that it's actually a a negative to try to harmonize the Gospels. Um, And uh, because each Gospel writer kind of has an agenda for what he wants to say and how he wants to frame Yeshua's life. Um, and then his death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension for sure. And so um, the Torah seems to operate somewhat like that. Um, that there are narrative sections, there are histor- historical sections. There's poetry. There's all, all the different types of writing, and yet they're not always chronological. So, but even in even in that sense or in that case, uh, there are there is a there is a thread, of course, that runs several threads, but one that we've kind of been tracking that runs through these uh, these parshiot. And so, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about um, uh, Akre and Kedoshim. Uh, that was last week. And this week, we want to jump in. And I want to talk this week about exile. Um, so, like I said, Vayikra 25, Lucas 25 is all about the Shemitah and the Yovel. And it's very interesting. Um, my temple teacher, Joseph Good, talks about uh, this commandment to be holy, right? Uh, back in, in Shemot, in Exodus, God wants a holy people. Through Vaikra, uh, the, the, the Parsha, Kedoshim, right, is all about holy ones, about how, you know, that God wants us to be holy because He is holy. And so we, we, we tend to, in, in, uh, in Christianity or in denominationalism, we tend to have this, this thing about holiness um, and especially about being a holy person and about following holy people. And depending on what background you come from, I know I, I use that caveat a lot, but it really is important because you know we can't paint Christianity or the church, quote unquote, with a broad brush. Because I know there's a lot of experiences that I've had that many of you listening out there had just it hasn't been your experience. Um, I, I know it when I teach. Um, you know, many times on Shabbat when I teach, people come up and say, "Well, like, man, I didn't, I didn't grow up like that at all." You know, but they may have even grown up in the same denomination. But not have had the same doctrinal or theological experiences or teachings that I've had, so to, to, I use that caveat for good reason. Um, but w- you know certain certain denominations, certain circles, certain veins, um, it's very, very important to have the the man of God quote unquote or the woman of God um, that generally it's if you you know if you start going to a church. And you you become a member there you you know you feel good about it and you you join in uh, and and become a member and become part of the congregation then that pastor becomes the the man of God quote I'm using air quotes you can't see me but the quote unquote man of God in your life and the narrative gets to be where that is who God sent you to and that is who God sent to you in order to care and direct for your life. And and I believe in the in the role of of pastorship. Um, I mean, I am one, right? And shepherding, we need pastors, especially in the the Hebrew roots messianic movement. We need pastors more than than anything, in my opinion. Um, it reminds me of Paul. You know, uh, Shaul said that you have many teachers, but not many fathers. And, and in a sense, that pastor is that shepherd in a, in a way, that father figure um, that looks out for nurturing and, and not just teaching and instruction, but for, you know, gentle correction, for restoration, uh, for counsel, for all those things, for wisdom. Uh, and there's a lot of things tied up in the role of pastor as, as they're on all of the, all of the different uh, ministry gifts. And so the, the, and I'm not against the idea of a pastor being, you know, placed in your life, um for for a season or for a particular reason even i didn't mean that to rhyme it just did um but but some some circles and some denominations take that way way too far and he's the holy or she's the holy man or woman of god and uh and you listen to everything they say and do everything they say and don't question and, and et, cetera, et cetera. or maybe even the denomination you know the elders of the denomination they're the holy ones and they're the ones that that lead and and um and so we, we have that concept, this concept of holiness, this concept of set apart. And getting back to my original point, Joe Good talks about uh, when he began to really start to study holy and what, what holiness is all about. Um, the first, very first mention of the word holy is actually in the beginning of, of Genesis in Bereshit. And it is referring not to a man, but it is referring to the Shabbat. It is referring to a time. He called the Shabbat holy. And so it's a holy time. And then you have the creation of Adam and Hava, right? They are not called holy. The next time we hear the word holy is in Exodus when Moshe goes up and is passes the, the burning bush, right? And he is on the mount, on Mount Sinai, and Hashem tells him to take off his sandals because the place he is standing is Admat Kodesh, is holy ground. So the first two mentions of the word holy are referring to a time and to a place, to a geographic location. Think about what comes in between. So if we we look at those two mentions of the word holy and we look at them as kind of bookends, the first... Being in the beginning of Bereshit, and the the next one being with Moshe and the burning bush in, in Shemot. If we look at that and we think about all the things that have happened between those two occurrences, right? Like I said, we have Adam and Hava, the first kingly priestly figures in Israel's story. They are never called holy, right? We have Noah. I mean, Noah. That everybody knows the story of Noah, right? Everybody around the world knows the story of Noah. Never called holy. We have Avraham. You, you know, never called holy. Avraham is never called holy. Uh, his sons, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Yosef, never called holy. Not until Moshe do we have this, this idea again. And so Joe does some incredible teachings on holiness, and I would refer you to him because he does a much, much, much better job than I ever could. But um, th- this idea of, of holiness is, is tied to time and place. Now, when the nation of Israel is being formed, God Hashem does uh, require them or, or, or ask them, invite them to be holy as He is holy nationally. And we just don't think in those terms in the Christian church. We think about individual holiness. I have to be holy. And yet, in the, in the Torah especially, and all through Tanakh, and, and in Judaism today, holiness is, righteousness is about not only the individual, but an individual, a nation made up of individuals, and it's about national, uh, righteousness, about national holiness. And I think that's the Bible's attitude towards holiness all the way throughout, really. Not even just stopping at, you know, at Tanakh. It's the, it's, it's in the New Testament as well, about nations and about leaders and kings. And so, um, Vayikra, 25 Behar begins with the Shabbat, the Shemitah and the Yovel. And it begins like this in chapter 25. We're going to read a good bit of scripture today. So uh, if you're driving, just listen. Uh, if you're sitting down and listening, I'd encourage you to break open a Bible and, and read along with me. Uh, I'm in the tree of life version and Leviticus chapter 25 verse one starts and it says, and then uh, Adonai said to Moshe at Mount Sinai, um, and again, this is, you know, at the end of last, um, last week's Parsha was about the menorah, uh, and, and those things and, uh, the, the very end. So we start out and it says, uh, and "Adonai said to Moshe on Mount Sinai, speak to B'nai Israel and tell them when you come into the land, which I give you, then the land is to keep a Shabbat to Adonai. The land is to keep a Shabbat to Adonai. He goes on to say for six years, You may sow your field, and for six years you may prune your vineyard and gather its fruits. But in the seventh year, there is to be a Shabbat rest for the land, a Shabbat to Adonai. You are not to sow your field or prune your vineyard. You are not to reap what grows by itself during your harvest, nor gather the grapes of your unintended vine. It is to be a year of Sabbath rest for the land. Verse 6, whatever the Sabbath of the land produces will be food for you, for your servant, your maidservant, your hired worker, and the outsider dwelling among you. Even for your livestock and animals, you are to count off, verse 8, seven Shabbatot of years, seven seven Sabbaths, seven times seven, that is to be uh, Shabbatot of years, 49 years. And then the tenth day of the seventh month in Yom Kippur, sound a shofar blast, and you are to sound the shofar all throughout your land. Verse 10, you are to make the fiftieth year holy, and proclaim again, year, time, right. You uh, make it holy and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee or yovel with each of his return of his property and each return to his family. Um, and so it goes on to talk about the yovel. My, my so my my kind of jumping off point is that uh, we we tend to focus a lot on people on ourselves as being holy, and yet it seems that the Torah's focus is not only on people. But people as part of a three-part structure of holiness or a three, three – um, I don't know how to – say three, there's three parts, a, a triune structure of holiness, and that is time, that is space or place, and then that is also people. And we just don't ever focus on the first two. And this becomes really important, I think, when we talk about exile, and maybe one of the reasons why, um, as as Christians, we don't understand why exile is such a big deal in Scripture. And I hope to kind of draw some of that out today. Um, we've talked about exile before in our Genesis series, and um, so before we do that, let's kind of review some of the exile stuff That We've covered already and maybe it'll be familiar to it. If it's not familiar to you, it's okay. Um, It's pretty simple to understand once you kind of get your head around it, right? So we've talked at at length about how uh, Genesis 1 is, uh, from an ancient Near Eastern perspective, likely not a physical scientific creation story, Um, that it is a way that the ancient folks wrote about how their God brings order to this world, Order to the cosmos, order to the world, et cetera, et cetera. And so, this thing about three parts is really, really important um, because it's through all of all of this ancient writing, not only Israel's writing but other nations' writing as well. Again, I would refer you to another teacher, Dina Dai, Doctor Dina Dai, who has done a lot of work um, on explaining this stuff in her books and her teachings. So, go out and resource her stuff because it's really, really good. Um, and so you have in the cosmos, from an ancient perspective, the Earth is flat, and the firmament, it, what you see in the sky, is basically a it's basically a dome. It's like a terrarium, uh, like a snow globe. I've, my kids explain it. So um, it's like a snow globe. So you have the 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 sky, which is the dome over the top, and then you have the Earth, and then you have underneath the Earth, right? So you have this three part kind of structure to it in the cosmos. Um, you have what's outside of the earth, uh, which is usually chaotic water. It's kind of thought of as chaotic water, and then you have the earth itself, and then inside the earth in Genesis one or just one one and two, you have the outside, you have the earth, and then you have this place called Eden, right? You have this place called Eden. So there's the three part structure again, and then on the earth you have the sky, the the land, and the under the chaotic waters underneath. And then on the earth itself, you have um, you have Eden, or you have the, the the land, right? Then you have Eden, and then you have a garden in Eden. That's how the beginning of Bereshit talks about it. So that kind of three-part thing again, I mean, it's, it's all over the place. It's really super, super, super cool. So if we look at, uh, kind of fast forward then to uh, the tabernacle, right? So Israel is camped out in the wilderness, okay? And so you have outside of the camp, uh, you have, well, let's talk about the garden real, real quick, and then we'll, we'll go to the tabernacle. So the, so the Garden of Eden, or the Garden in Eden. You have uh, You have Eden, which is the place, right, the general place. You have the garden in the center, but on the outside of that, what do you have? You have the garden in the center, you have Eden itself, which is a location, and then outside of that, what is it? Well, we find some hints when we go and we we start to look at uh, where the fir- where the first murder happened. It was out in the wilderness, out outside of Eden. Where the uh, so the idea is that chaos, sacred space, um, is where God orders chaos and and brings His order. Then outside of that is where there is no uh, godly order, where that dominion hasn't been set forth yet. And so you have. Uh, you have the, the wilderness or the field, it's also called. Then you have Eden. Then you have the garden. Okay, now let's go to Israel in the wilderness. You have the camp of Israel, right? Which, think about that as Eden, the camp of Israel. What's outside the camp of Israel? Well, where do they send the uh, the scapegoat for Yom Kippur, right? It's to Azazel in the wilderness. So you have the wilderness outside or the field, the desert, then you have the camp of Israel, and then what's in the center of the camp? It's the tabernacle, right? So that three-part structure. Now let's zoom in a little bit more, and let's look at the tabernacle. You have the sanctuary, you have the inner court, and you have the holy of holies. See that three-part structure again. This is all over the place. And so it would it would make sense, and it would connect some dots maybe for some of you, that the holiness is, is thought about in three different ways, in three different parts, You have a time, you have a space, and you have a people. And so when we start to talk about uh, the, the the Shemitah and the Yovel, this becomes really, really important. It's talking about the land and the time, right? It's talking about the land and the time. Specifically, not a whole lot of mention of the people, except when we get to the beginning of chapter 26, where it starts talking about idolatry about making idolatry. And, and so we've spent a whole chapter talking about the time and the place, the, the Shemitah and the Yovel and the land and what it produces and how, we're, how Israel is supposed to treat it. Then we get to chapter 26, Ah, and then we begin talking about the people, the third part of kind of the holiness triad, right? And what's the first thing that Vayikra talks about when it talks about the people? and its relationship to, to holiness and to this the sacred time and the sacred place, it begins immediately talking about idolatry, which is really interesting. Why would it start talking about idolatry first off? Well, because in the book of Bereshit, in the book of Genesis, did you know that God made idols in the book of Genesis? That Hashem himself made idols and has idols to this day? It's like, wait, what? Bereshit 1 tells us that Hashem in the Divine Council said, Let us make mankind in our own image, after our own likeness. And that word image is the word selim, T-S-E-L-E-M, selim. And that word selim means idol. It means, so what are idols, right? Idols are statues, or they're made in the likeness of, of the God or whatever, and they are the interface between the people and the God. They're not the God, but they are the inner, the, the God is, is it's, it's said to, uh, the God embodies them, but they are not the God. They're, they're an interface. They're where the God and the people meet. Did you know that God created idols? He created me and you to be that interface where people that don't know him can meet him. How very cool is that right that's amazing the the new testament are going to call us the the temple we're the temple. What is the temple in sacred space it's the place where heaven and earth meet so all of these things point to us as 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 god's image his his idol um the ones that should embody who he is and show the world who he is. I mean how heavy and how super cool and powerful is that. So, as we get into the next section, we're gonna start on chapter 26 of Aikra, and we're gonna read a bunch of the chapter, and we're gonna really start to talk about exile and why it's important. Hey everybody, welcome back to the second segment in this episode of Image Bearers Radio. Uh, I hope you are enjoying this and I want you to just hang on because I think this is going to be really, really helpful for you. It has been super helpful for me uh, and really helped me to think about things a a little differently. So uh, Leviticus chapter 26 is sort of like Deuteronomy chapter 28. It's the chapter of blessings and cursings. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, as Moshe, Deuteronomy is kind of the book. Uh, the call to remember, uh, and it's Moshe's, kind of, you know, his farewell message to Israel and asking them, and God, through him, asking them to remember the call uh, to partner with him. And so Leviticus 26 is picked up again in, in Devarim, and um, again, it begins with these, uh, these this verse on idolatry, and then verse 2 is about, again, the, uh, the, the Sabbaths, and having ranked reference for his sanctuary, Again, that's time and place, right? It's, isn't that cool? Okay, so we get into verse three, and it's uh, it goes on uh, to verse thirteen. It's just ten verses about the blessings, and we're not going to focus so much on the blessings today, uh, except for uh, that when we when we start, he talks about walking in his statues in verse three, keeping his misvotes uh, and carrying them out. And again, that word keep um, is the word shamar, and uh, to keep. In, in our vernacular today sort of implies to do them, do them perfectly or do them right. I don't know where we get that idea, but that's kind of the idea I always had. And yet in, to to keep, it can also mean to guard them. So it, it never was for Israel about keeping them perfectly. Um, it was about guarding them and having a heart towards them. And so he says, uh, you know, to, he gives the commandment to keep them. Verse four is about rains and crops and and those things and about the abundance that will come. Uh, it goes on to talk about the enemies and how God will, you know, you will chase them. You'll chase them by the by exponentially. Um, and verse nine, he talks about he will turn toward us or toward Israel and make fruitful and multiply and confirm his covenant. Um, and in verse 11, he says, I will set my mishkan, my tabernacle, right? My mishkan among you and my soul will not abhor you. I will walk among you and I will be your God and you will be my people. What does that sound like? It sounds a lot like the Garden of Eden, right? It should because the tabernacle and later the temple are a micro Eden. They're a recreation of, of Eden in order to, to access that Edenic ideal again. Verse 13, I am Adonai, your God, who brought you forth from the land of Egypt. Again, kind of that's that refrain, uh, that we talked about. Now, verse 14 turns to, um, the subheading in the tree of life. It says it well, I think faithlessness ensures misery. that's the the kind of the subheading before verse fourteen. Faithlessness ensures misery or instead of faithful faithfulness or faithlessness, we could talk about loyalty and disloyalty. disloyalty ensures misery. and I want to read through this because it's really important now, Israel has a covenant with Hashem, right? In, in our vernacular, again, we could say they're, they're saved, right? Now think about all the ways we think about our salvation. Uh, I grew up Southern Baptist, so like, eternal security is a big deal, eternal salvation, um, and you know, that no one, if you truly are born again, no one you, you can never lose that, et cetera., et cetera. Again, I know, depending on this, <laughs> the background you come from, there can be a lot of different opinions on that. I'm just telling you my experience. But if we think about this as they're in covenant, right? They're, they're, they're saved, they're redeemed. And so we're talking about them being disloyal uh, and what the results of that are. And I think it's really important. So we're going to read pretty much, um, and we're going to read a, a big section up to verse 39 and then a couple of verses after that. So let's start in verse 14. And I, I want to make a couple points along the way. So we start in verse 14. He says, but if you will not listen to me, nor carry out all these mitzvot, and if you reject my statutes, and if your soul abhors my ordinances, so that you do not keep or guard all of my mitzvot, but instead break my covenant. Now, let's talk about those couple of verses, because those are, those are important. It's, it is about doing the commandments, and it is about doing them correctly, and it is about doing them mostly with the correct intent, kavana the the way your heart is turned that is all extremely important i don't want you to hear me say that's not important it is extremely important but look at verse 15 and he talks about your soul abhorring his ordinances right it it's about your the it's about your heart's approach to the torah itself to the instructions of hashem it, themselves so it is about keeping them and doing them doing them in the right ways with the right intent but in my opinion, it's, more, it's always been more about intent. It's always been more about intent. He goes on to say in verse 16, so if you don't do these things, uh, and your heart turns away basically from his instructions. Verse 16, then I will do the following to you in return. I will appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever that will dim the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. You will sow your seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. That sounds pretty dire, right? That sounds pretty, pretty rough. These are some of the beginning circumstances that Israel is going to face. And, and what we're going to see, I believe, is we're going to see a ramp up in the curses. We're going to see a ramp up in the, cir- in the uh, consequences for disobedience. Uh, verse 17 says, I will set my face against you. Remember what we saw in the blessings, he will turn towards. Here it says he will set his face against us, uh, and you will be routed before your enemies again you were we were going to rout out our enemies in the in the blessings part now our enemies are going to rout us out. those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee when no one pursues you this is paranoia right it's just it's being paranoid um thinking that somebody's after you and they're really not so this is it's also interesting that the the um the curses of Israel always have to do with outside nations uh they're they're not so they are They are heavenly events, but they're also in conjunction with how the nations will respond to Israel. That's really important. It goes back to Abraham's blessing, right? That I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you or call you cursed. Um, And it's always about Israel's relationship to the nations. Because what was Israel's job? Israel's job was to be a nation of priests, um, a holy people. So that God could work through them, in them and through them for our benefit, for the, the nation, the benefit of the nation, the people of the nations, right? And so there's always this interplay. It's not just Israel and God. It's not just those, you know, it's not just Israel and God that are are, um, are in this, this relationship. Israel also has a relationship to the nations. Um, and he says, uh, verse 18, so that's kind of the first layer, the, those the 16 and 17 that we read. And then verse 18, he says, if you, in spite of these things, so that's, that's going to be the first round, in spite of these things, you will not listen. Then I will chastise you, ties you seven times more for your sins. So if, if 16 and 17 wasn't bad enough, which sounds pretty bad, if that wasn't bad enough, then seven times more, okay? I will break your pride of power. I will make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. So no rain, no rain. No, for no uh, fertility in the land. Also, your strength will be spent in vain, for your land will not yield its increase, nor will the trees of the land yield their fruit. So, this is talking about the sustenance, right? And and how the land, their Israel's relationship to the land, because what was the last chapter about? It was about the Sabbath, the Shemitah, and the Yovel, and how the land was supposed to have rest. Verse twenty one. If you, so that was phase two. If you keep walking contrary to me and will not listen to me. Then I will multiply the plagues on you seven times like your sins. I will send the wild animals among you, which will rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, and make you so few in number that your roads will become deserted. Can you feel the increasing, like, holy smokes, this is, this is getting bad. The, your children will die. The wild animals, the beasts of the field will begin to infiltrate the camp, and they will come in, and they will kill your livestock, your children, and you'll become so few in number that your roads will be de- become deserted. That's, that's pretty scary. But what I want you to keep in mind through all of these things that we're, we're reading, Israel is still in the land, and they're in the covenant. God has not turned them loose. They are still, this is, in, this is a, God's trying to work out this relationship. This is this is asking them to do something for their good. Them not wanting to do it, and God saying, "Let me let's let's try a different angle to see if I can get you to come around." It's very similar to what we do with our children, right? We are called the children of God. We have children. This relationship is the same for us, okay? And so, but that's that's pretty severe. Now, verse twenty three. Now, if in spite of these things you will not be chastened by me, but walk contrary to me instead. Then I will also walk contrary to you. Then I will strike you. I myself, so this is not the nations anymore, this is Hashem himself, seven times for your sins. I will bring a sword upon you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant, and you will be gathered together inside your cities. I will send the pestilence among you, and you will be given into the hand of the enemy. This is Hashem working through the nations to bring consequence to Israel. Verse 26, when I break your staff of bread, ten women will bake your bread in one oven, and they will bring back your bread by weight so that you will eat but not be satisfied. So again, another increasing, but, but God is still trying to work with, with the people of Israel. He's still trying to work with us. He's still calling us, saying, I gave you these good ways. I gave you these, these good instructions, these instructions that are life. The Torah is life. It's the tree of life, right? And and we just we refuse to, to do it. Verse 27, yet in spite of this, you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me. Then I will walk contrary to you in wrath, so I will chastise you seven times for your sins. Listen to verse 29. You will eat the flesh of your sins, and you will eat the flesh of your daughters. That's heavy. Verse 30, I will destroy your high places and cut down your altars of incense, cast your dead bodies upon the bodies of your idols. My soul will abhor you. I will lay waste, verse 31, to your cities and devastate your sanctuaries. I will not smell your smoothing, your soothing aromas. Excuse me. So again, this is still Israel's still in the land. They're still working. They're trying to work out God's trying to work, work this out with them. He does not want to to put them out of the land. This was this is the promise from Avram, Avram Avinu, our father. He this is the promise, and the last thing that Hashem wants to do is kick the kids out of the house the last thing he wants to do is to pack their bags for them and say you're out go fend for yourselves that's the last think about this as if you have children or you you know you have nieces and nephews whatever think about this in terms of your home your children live in your home you do your very best to provide them for them and to you know to nourish them to teach them to train them to to bring out the potential that you know that Hashem is put inside of them to do the very best you can for them. Many of us say so that they can have a better life than we had, right? That's the point. We sacrifice for our children all these things that we do. And yet we have issues, right? Children grow up and they they get a mind of their own and they develop attitudes and develop, you know, we all did it. We all did it to our parents. Why is it it surprising when, when our kids turn around and do it to us, right? They are our children after all. And so this think about this Leviticus, part of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 in that, the sense of in a house, in your house, and how you relate to your children. Your heart is, is not to hurt your children. Your heart is not to, uh, to take away from your children. Your heart is to give them liberty and give them freedom and, and, and see them mature in the beauty of what their life can become. This is the heart of God for the people of the children of Israel, for B'nai Israel. And yet he says, I will, I will I'll, I'll destroy your cities, your altars of incense. At this point, Israel is, 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 is as if they are involved in idolatry, active idol worship. They've built high places, bemote, the, the word bemote, high places. They've set up uh, incense altars. They've set up idols, et cetera, et cetera. And yet Hashem still has them in his, in his land, in his hand, going, please, please come back. Please make teshuva, right? In verse um, 33, as bad as everything else was, as, listen, you're eating your son and daughter's flesh, that's pretty severe. And yet as bad as that was, he says that Israel still wouldn't turn. Verse 33, he says, I will scatter you among the nations and I will draw out the sword after you so your land will become desolate And your cities will become a waste. Verse 34. Then the land will enjoy its Shabbatot, all the days of its desolation. While you are in the land of your enemies, then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it will have rest. And that that rest which it did not have from your Sabbaths when you lived on it. Verse 36. As for those who remain after the exile... I will bring weakness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies so that the sound of a driven leaf will put them to flight and they will flee as one flees from the sword and fall, even when no one is pursuing them. So we have that like kind of paranoia again. Verse 37, they will stumble over one another as if before the sword when no one pursues and you will have no strength to stand before your enemies. You will perish among the nations and the land of your enemies will devour you. Those of you who are left in the land of your enemies, after all of that, will rot away because of their iniquity. And because of the iniquities of their fathers, they will rot away with them. Whew. So a pretty heavy chapter, right? I mean, this is significantly heavy. And what I, the point I want to make and the thing I want to talk about in exile really is to draw your attention to this, this increase in the in the severity of the circumstances. And again, we're thinking about it like a house, right? So how, and some of you may have had this very situation. Um, My wife and I, Heather, we were youth pastors. I was before her and I got married for several years, but together, just her and I were youth pastors for over 15 years. And I've been a youth pastor for almost 25 years in, in my ministry. And so I've seen this situation play out in, in home after home, after home, and it's devastating and it's sad. Some of you may have had this situation where you know you just can't come to terms. And eventually, as a last resort, as a very last resort, you have to put your one of your children out. And the, the devastation and the heartbreak that that causes is just immense. It's, it's indescribable how, how, how much that affects a family and hurts the parents as well as the child. The child usually is not hurt in the meantime because they're in rebellion, but eventually they realize this is not, you know, I had it so much better, right? I had it so much better before I, you know, before I decided to rebel. And so think about it in those terms again. All of these, the, the, the land drying up or the the skies drying up and the land not being fertile right and not having sustenance to be able to eat that's that's like famine right so to have famine is that's all us in america we've never experienced famine we don't know i mean we have toilet paper shortages every once in a while and everybody goes in this big uproar you know it's like mass pandemonium because we can't get toilet paper and not to say that some of you listening might not have ever had bouts of of of, of hunger where you know you couldn't afford it or, or thing life just it was it was that bad. And yet, as a nation, we've never experienced. We America throws away more food than most nations consume, and so this famine is bad. And then war, right, is part of the consequences. We've never had war on our shores. That we've experienced, I mean, yeah, the, you know, Revolutionary War, Civil War, yes, but that we've experienced in, in our modern generations, we, we wouldn't know what to do with ourselves if war came to our shore, whether it was, you know, among us as a nation or whether it was foreign, as, as this talks about, being from enemies. We, we, don't, we wouldn't know how that affects your entire life. It affects how you work, if you work. It affects how you, we just don't understand. I mean, maybe we've seen a little bit of that through COVID and through this, you know, pandemic or whatever, Um, you know, but it's affected the entire nation. It's affected people not only from working and stuff, but it's affected mental health and et cetera, all these different, you know, um, different things that it's touched. And so all those things, just read through these blessings again. Think about how severe these things are. And yet they're not the most severe. That's the point I want to make. All of these circumstances, these consequences, they are severe, but they are not the most severe. What is the most severe consequence that Hashem has for His people? It's exile. The most severe consequence is when He says, All right, enough. I'm done. Get out. Get out. And you're not only going to be pushed out, scattered, but you're going to be subject, subjugated to the whims of the the land that you're going to be, the the rulers of the lands that you're going to be, where where I'm where I'm going to send you, where you're going to be scattered to. And so, the the the, the concept of exile is huge in the minds of Israel. And what's really important is that it's huge in the minds of the Jewish people. E- the nation of Israel is right today is not perfect. Every you know, every Jewish person living there will tell you that. It's not perfect. It's not a theocracy, it's not, you know, it's not the, the Torah nation, it's not the covenant nation that that they hope it would be or that they want it to be. They know that it's not, it's not a surprise to anybody. But they're in their land. They're 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 in their land, they have you know, relative peace most of the time, some of the time. And yet there's still, there's still acts of war against them. There's still disruption. There's still issues in the land of Israel in the government and the people's lives and the Jewish people's lives. There's still hunger. There's still homelessness, right? There, there's still all these things. And yet they're in their land. They're in their land, sacred place, sacred space. They're in their land. The thing that the Jewish people fear the most is another exile. And I don't know. Who's to say that this is the last time they come back from, to the land? I don't know. We don't know that. There could be another cycle of exile and return. I, we don't know. We, it's a promise in our generation and a miraculous one in our generation that Israel is back in the land. But is this the last time? We don't know. Exile is a thing that is, is, sits in the heart and is probably the biggest fear of the Jewish people today. This is why. Because out of all the consequences you could imagine, exile is the worst. But I don't want to leave this episode there because that's really, really severe. However, I would like you to think about exile through the rest of the Tanakh, right? Think about the Babylonian Assyrian exiles and how that radically changed and shaped the nation of Israel, and by, def- by proxy, the Judaism that we know today and the Jewish people that we know today. That time in Babylon was was incredibly intense. Read through the, the book of Jeremiah. Uh, and Jeremiah is all about this Babylonian exile and, and how the people are supposed to act in exile. Leviticus chapter 26, again, verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity and that of their fathers in the treachery they committed against me. See how serious he takes this? And how they walk contrary to me. In return, I walk contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. And if that time their uncircumcised heart becomes humble, not their flesh, their heart becomes humbled so that they accept the punishment for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. And to remember, it doesn't mean like God sent him out, right? If you're a parent, you send your son or daughter, God forbid, out, because they won't comply with the life you're trying to give them. You send them out. Do you forget about them? Of course not. (laughs) Of course not. And neither does Hashem when he sends Israel into exile. He doesn't forget them. So this remembering is not like, oh, wait, yeah, I have a people somewhere. I hear their cry. What's going on? I forgot about them. That's not what it is. This remember is to, to speak and act on their behalf. That's what this remembers Zakar car is to speak and act on their behalf. He says, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. And I remember the land, but the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Shabbat. In other words, things are not going to change. I'm not going to let you back in the house and let you continue to act the way you were. There has to be a change in you. Verse 44. Yet for all that, when they're in the land that enters, I will not reject them, nor will I hate them into utter destruction, and break my covenant with them, for I am Adonai their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God, I am Adonai. These are the statutes, ordinances, and laws which Adonai made between himself and B'nai Israel at Mount Sinai by Moshe. My parents, my dad especially, used to always say, if you're going to live in my house, you're going to live by my rules, Right? And there's a lot of consequence for breaking parents' rules in a home. But none's as so severe as to say, get out, you're not welcome here anymore. And so this this idea of exile in Scripture is hugely important, which makes the return all the more important. So I hope you have some time to contemplate this and study it out this week. Until next week, shalom, shalom.